Marini's Media. Totally Football Show Summer Special, Europa League. After last night's Bono excitements, today team featuring Matt Vienko goes sneaking out the back door of Europa League as Inter triumphed 5-0 over Shakhtar and reached Friday's final with Sevilla in a Conte no contest. We ask, could Messi even get into this Inter side? Next up, it's the Champions League semi-finals. Two nights of Franco-Prussian drama, beginning with PSG against a team that makes them look like bastions of tradition, RB Leipzig. It's the Tony Football Show Summer Special in association with Paddy Power. Tuesday 18th of August, everybody. And here in the pod today, it's welcome Sasha Gurionov. Evening, James. Good evening to you. And also with us, James Horncastle. Hello, James. Hello to you too. Alvaro is going to be along, Alvaro Romeo, uh, a little bit later on to talk about, you know, the latest from Barcelona. We're going to begin with what was the biggest semi-final win ever in the UEFA Cup or Europa League, Inter's 5-0 demolition of Shakhtar Donetsk. If you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, take out a 30-day trial to see their unrivaled coverage of each and every Premier League club by heading to theathletic.com slash totally. Grandissimo gol di Lukaku, grandissimo gol di Lukaku, si merita tutti gli applausi, è il 5-0 dell'Inter sullo Shakhtar. Grandissimo Lukaku indeed and the whole Nerazzurri crew, biggest win in a European semi-final, uh, in any European semi-final since AC Milan did Real Madrid 5-0 back in 88-89, woof. All right, James Horncastle, how do you feel about those Nerazzurri? Not so pat so now, eh? <laughs> no, in fact, uh, one of the best players on the pitch tonight, Nicolo Barella, uh, he was asked what difference Conte had made to his game. He was like, I'm less instinctive now. I, I think more with my head. I think more about the game. And that more rational kind of inter came out, I think, tonight because one of the things that was really impressive about them, it wasn't just the scoreline, it was how they managed the game because... Uh, at the end of the first half, for example, you saw Shakhtar begin to get a little bit of a rhythm together, impose themselves on Inter. And Inter just said, right, if that's what you're going to do, we're going to sit back, we're going to dig in, and you're not going to be able to lay a single punch on us. Um, and then, of course, in the second half, they just put the accelerator down and ran away with it. And they were really impressive. I thought, um, again, just how they went about deciding... Uh, when to sit off Shakhtar and when to go and press them. Uh, they just got the balance right. And uh, the goals that they scored from winning the ball high up the pitch, in, in some respects, thanks to their wonderful playmaker, the Shakhtar goalkeeper, um, Piatov, who um, <laughs> I think was auditioning for the Inter number 10 shirt tonight uh, with some of, the, uh, some of the balls that he was giving to their strikers and, and, and midfielders. Um, it was just a, a dominant performance and picked up really on where they left off against Leverkusen. Mm. Donetsk, a massively disappointing uh, night, I'm sure you'll feel, uh, Sasha, from them. But they actually didn't start that badly. It took a huge error from Piatov to actually open up the scoring. Yeah, uh, when I was on last time, I said that uh, the vulnerable positions in the Shakhtar team are the centre-backs and the goalkeeper. I think he said he was actually error-prone. And yet again, uh, he proved he proved to be so in this game. I mean, when it's a very tight game, as it was for the first hour, 
um, one mistake was punished. And to be honest, um, you know, James was saying how you know, Borelli, you know, thinks about what he does now. I think he had a lot of time to think as Piatov played that pass to him and to go wide. And again, difference in class. So you could see Lautaro Berry that header when Schachter had the chance at one nil on the hour. The header went straight um, at Handanovic, um, and two minutes later, Inter got the second. So I think Inter's goals were timed very well. I think Inter. Like the way Inter played, every time they fell into a, like a proper 5-3-2 uh, when they were in defence, I think they were clearly waiting um, to hit Schachter on the counter. Schachter, I thought, did very well not to overcommit, maybe a little bit too well. There was a moment, I think, just before the first goal when Marlos had a chance to go forward, he actually checked and stopped. And I think you could see that that set the pattern for the game. And I think after that, it was, an, and, and it, it was, it was going to be decided on mistakes. And sadly, I think in this situation, uh, once uh, Piatov messes up for the first one, I also think his footwork was poor for the second goal. And then they just fell apart because um, I think Inter went up a gear uh, and completely steamrolled them, which was quite disappointing because I thought um, they tried to play a very disciplined game, just undone by the aeroprone goalkeeper. They only committed three fouls all evening, Shakhtar. Uh, Inter uh, had 21. Were you surprised at how little fight there was in them? I don't think it's. I don't think it's a fight. I think um, um, I was listening to the BT commentary, and after about a quarter of the game, Robbie Savage said, uh, "Was saying, oh, you got to take risks." I don't think Shakhtar is that type of team. And I think even before the game, Luis Castro, the manager, was saying yesterday that, you know, calmness is in, is in their DNA. So I think, you know, even at 1-0, they were very much in the game and they were waiting for the moment and they got their moment. And I, th- I don't think they had to overcommit. Um, and it's just that they didn't take the chance and were hit by the sucker punch. And after that, that was it. Well, the goals flew in after that, after that Marais miss, as you say, uh, barely a minute after D'Ambrosio heads one in, then uh, Lautaro Martinez gets his second. The first was that off that Piatov uh, mistake when Barella put in an absolutely wonderful curling ball and he headed it home. Lukaku then made it 10 straight Europa League games that he gets on the score sheet and then he adds another one after that. He's now on 33 goals for the season. Yeah. And those comparisons with Ronaldo are coming thick and fast. (laughs) He's a goal away from matching uh, Ronaldo, who had the most prolific first season uh, of any Inter player in in their illustrious history, which is quite an accolade, even though no one really on social media or certainly in United Twitter wants to give him that. They'll point out that it's a different age when Ronaldo did it. He did it in fewer games and all that's true. But at the same time, it remains a very impressive feat. Uh, Different an, uh, Serie A as well. It is <laughs> okay, James. Uh, let's 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 keep uh, diminishing this achievement. I, I I still think it it deserves to be looked on and and, uh, and celebrated because um, there aren't many players um, who've who've been able to do that, particularly in their first season. Let's not forget Lukaku had no preseason whatsoever um, because he was sort of hanging around for United and Inter get to get this deal going. It looked at one stage like he was going to go to Juventus because Inter couldn't get the deal done. And he wasn't really training with uh, with United um, all that much either. Uh, I remember what in his second game, he had a back spasm, which didn't keep him out too much. But so uh, my point being is that uh, there are certainly a lot of factors that meant that this didn't have to happen, that uh, Lukaku might have just had a 15 or 20 goal season instead of a 33 goal one. Um, and, you know, I think as we said, certainly on BT's morning show t- today, James, that, uh, you know, Romelu's become a leader for this team. Um, and, you know, Conte has been trying to get uh, the entire team um, to raise its level rather than just the star players like Romelu and Lautaro. He wants everyone to really step up and 
I think that was the, the really encouraging thing tonight because um, you saw two of their younger players, Italian players. You know, this is Internazionale who you know, were the first Italian club to field you know, sort of a starting 11 of all, of all foreign players. To have two young Italians like those two stepping up and doing the business for them tonight. Uh, I think Barella over the course of this Europa League campaign in Germany has been excellent for them. Is, uh, is, is another thing to be kind of quite excited about really. I think it's also quite a nice touch uh, that Lukaku could be matching Ronaldo's achievement in that his fir in first season because remember Inter won the UEFA Cup that year and also Ronaldo had a huge semi-final against Spartak Moscow when he scored at least one phenomenal goal away in Moscow on a pitch that had no grass. Um, so uh, it, it was. Uh, That's it, incredible. I, I think it's. It was just after the winter. I think it was in April, and it just yeah, there, there was no grass. He was playing basically on a mud pitch and. Uh, you know, the Russians were very disappointed, but they were like, wow, who, this guy, this is incredible. How can you play football on this type of pitch? So they won the cup. I think it's Lukaku is currently outscoring um, Ronaldo in Europe. I think he's got 14 goals and eight assists in his last 10 Europa League games. So I think it would be really nice if he lifts that trophy at the end of this season, perhaps with more goals than Ronaldo. Mm, interesting. Uh, Sevilla, of course, the opponents that await Inter on Friday, who have bags of tradition. Looking back, James, can you can you remember when was the last time Inter looked this convincing in Europe? We we were impressed with their performance against Bayer Leverkusen, but there were the same questions about killing off a game. This time there was there were none of those doubts, none of those inefficiencies. No, I think this was up there with what we saw in the group stages in the Champions League, but they weren't able to kind of sustain over 90 minutes the away games against Borussia Dortmund and, and Barcelona, where they took the lead um, and were very good for the first uh, first hour and then faded. And that was because Conte thought that they didn't have the depth, he didn't have the the players to go to on the bench. But I think in, in wider into history, you know, going back over the course of the last you know, decade, you are looking at... Um, yeah, really since the treble. Uh, that was the last time that we saw Inter uh, give their supporters nights like these. Um, and but not score lines like these. No, not score, not score lines like these, but I sort of, I, I think emotions like this, the, 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 I think this has been true of the entire campaign, really, particularly the first uh, three or four months. This feeling that Inter are Inter again, that, uh, and not the Pazzi Inter, that they are a competitive team that can win things. Um, yeah, that sense has been elusive really for the last nine years. And I think Conte's given it back. And again, just listening to the players, particularly tonight, but you know, at various different stages of the season, they, they, they believe that, the fan base believes that. And I think yeah, that, is, that is something that has been missing because there's, there's always been this sense with Inter. And, and sometimes it's reappeared this year, like against Bologna, against Sassuolo, that they are flaky. Um, but for the most part, I'd say this year, they've been... Uh, they've been very convincing, um, and uh, this, I, I, I again just wonder how that with this. Let's go away to Germany. Let's play every three days. It does feel like that kind of ma major tournament mentality, mini camp that 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 I think Conte actually really likes, and I think that's the other thing to look at from tonight. Conte has that question mark over him always about yeah he just doesn't do it in Europe, does he? Yeah, and yeah maybe this is a a, a big. Uh, a big step towards him answering that definitively, even though, of course, people say oh, it's only, only the Europa League and all that sort of thing. But I think tonight was a big step in the right direction for him. But at the same time, this is the first Europa League final for an Italian club in the 21st century. So it is probably it is quite a significant step. It is. It's huge. Yeah. Sash, what, what impressed you most about Inter this evening? 
I think, uh, you know, we've seen uh, this discipline, well, with, with Chelsea, I've seen this very disciplined uh, defensive unit that they what we saw today. I think um, you could see this, the results of all this shadow training. I mean, they're very, very organized at the back. I, I don't know... Uh, how they will deal with Sevilla's width, perhaps. I mean, you could see those big flowing moves, but I think they will be probably a bit tighter at the back with five because as soon as they lost the ball today, back with five, protected by a three, no space between that. So I'm curious to see how how Sevilla are going to try to find their way through that. Okay, well, Friday is the Europa League semi-final. Next up, Tuesday, it's the first of the Champions League semis as PSG meet RB Leipzig. Let's tackle that next. Everyone remembers that time you've had that peach of an accumulator looking good only for... Oh, and the keeper's let it slip through his legs in the 94th minute. Or the right back has to pull on the gloves and face a penalty. Or Man United have again conceded a late equaliser. But with Paddy Power's Acker Cracker, you get a free bet if one leg of your fourfold plus Acker lets you down on all football matches and all markets. Paddy Power. Max free bet £10. Minimum odds of 1 to 5 on each leg. Online exclusive. Exclude shop bets. T's and C's apply. 18 plus. BeCumbleAware.org. This is the Totally Summer Special by the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Two thousand and nine. It was the year of the swine flu pandemic, of paper planes, and a new president named Barack Obama. It was the year we learnt new words like alt-right, anti-vaxxer, and subtweet, and the year that the Red Bull Group bought a fifth-tier side from Eastern Germany and called them RB Leipzig. Eleven years on, here they are in the Champions League semi-final. How are they going to fare against their opponents, Paris Saint-Germain? Well, we've called up our old friends Raphael Honigstein and Julien Laurence. First up, Rafa on Leipzig's chances. Rafa, first of all, the French are euphoric about having two clubs in the semi-finals. Reaction a bit more mixed in Germany, given one of their two teams is RB Leipzig. Yes, they don't uh, generate uh, a lot of uh, sympathy. But I think it really depends on who you're talking to. Because I think for a, a sizable, perhaps majority of, of fans who are not necessarily you know, part of the ultra movement who don't really have perhaps the, the same adherence to, to to principles and to traditional values. I think there is, um, I don't want to say an increasing acceptance, but perhaps just a uh, a sense of, yeah, they are part of the furniture now and we can't really get that upset about them anymore. So, I don't think you know you know you're going to see scenes reminiscent of the ones in Minsk at the moment of people saying you know RB Leipzig get out of the Champions League semi-final um, type thing. Noted German football publication Elfreund refusing to even cover the game because in their mind a Leipzig isn't a football club but an imitation. What are the chances that they'll be refusing to cover the final as well? <laughs> yeah, quite low. Actually, and that shows you, I think, the limits of of the uh, the principles. I mean, having said that, I mean, I think if it's Leipzig against Bayern, the chances are very low that they could ignore that. Um, but yeah, I mean, for them, it was a, an opportunity to sort of re-emphasize their their sort of moral objections, and they are partly read because of that stance. You know, that the people who read El Freunde are um, traditionalist. They like the culture of, of fandom. They 
they despise and, and, and reject um, you know modern modern football especially when it comes in the guise of investor uh, owned or investor led clubs like like Leipzig so it's not a surprise but I think I suspect that even among their readers there might not be that much respect for the club but I think there might be a grudging respect for the team and what they're doing under Julian Nagelsmann because I think there is you know there is a difference and I think some observers are actually capable of you know disliking the club but still thinking that the team is playing good stuff. No Timo Werner, as you say, for the Atletico Madrid game, but they did have at the other end Dio Upamecano, who looked uh, superb at the back and, and, and pretty good coming forward as well. What do you think about the his chances in the prospective all-French clash between him and Kylian Mbappé? I mean, he is very fast. Um, that's the first thing everyone says about him, how fast he is. He doesn't look it because he's quite chunky and hulky, but apparently he is the one guy that could give... Timo Werner a decent run quite literally so I don't think it's necessarily the, the biggest issue I think what Leipzig want to do is to play as much football as they can I, th- I don't think they want to sit back I don't think they want to, to play on the break they don't have Timo Werner to play that kind of football necessarily uh, they could potentially put Adam Muller Lukman in who has similar characteristics but not quite the same quality as Werner so I think they'll try and do what they did against Atletico which is to keep them very far away from their own goal by by keeping the ball and by playing combination football I mean granted Atletico themselves made it fairly easy to be kept away from uh, Leipzig's goal because they made very little attempt to go forward uh, once they were level again but um, yeah I think that's going to be the game plan to just play play as much football as they can and and take the ball of of a Paris side who are probably not used to um, being without possession that much. Meantime, speaking of game plans, there's an all-German managerial derby on the benches with Nagelsmann against Tuchel, two of the three German managers in the last four of the Champions League. Yeah, and it's really interesting because Nagelsmann and Tuchel have, have a lot of history. Nagelsmann was a 21-year-old player at uh, the second team of Augsburg on the fringes of, of professional football and who had uh, some big knee problems and uh, kind of realized at that age that he was not going to be uh, a footballer, a professional footballer. And Thomas Tuchel, his coach and also the uh, coordinator at Augsburg, said, look, why don't you start to do a bit of scouting for me? And he sent him off to scout these these village teams effectively. And that was the beginning of, of Nagelsmann's coaching career. Um, and, you know, 13 years later, they meet in the semi-final of the Champions League is quite it's quite a story this it's absolutely remarkable have they met many times along the way they have when uh, Tuchel was was in charge of Dortmund um, Nagelsmann had just uh, come through at, as the coach of Hoffenheim at a really young age uh, both have very similar career trajectories if you will because Tuchel was named coach in 2009 um, having been the under-19s coach at uh, Mainz and become become the successor of Jurgen Klopp. I mean, there was a guy in between, but he didn't really work out. And Nagelsmann, of course, was appointed also from the under-19s uh, at a time when Hoffenheim were fighting against relegation. People thought it was kind of some kind of joke or PR trick, but he kept them up and then took them into Europe the next season. And both have no big experience um, as far as coaching was concerned before they got their first jobs Uh, at this level they were only youth coaches both hadn't been players both had to stop playing football because of injury problems 
and both have shown it's not so much uh, who you are but what you know uh, at least in German football and I think there is there is a sense of sort of meritocracy um, playing out there at least for those two it is Raphael Hornigstein meantime in the PSG corner Julien Laurence Julien hello hello my friend hi everyone Hi, Jules. How nice to be able to speak to you about a Champions League semi-final. Uh-huh. Did you ever think? <laughs> I had high hopes for PSG, of course, uh, especially after the draw. Mm. Although we knew that Dortmund first and then Atalanta were going to be difficult, but we had high hopes. For Lyon, I don't think anyone saw that coming, not even Lyon themselves. But it's great. It's great. It, it doesn't mean that Ligue 1 has become the best league in the world overnight. And I don't think we can expect this every season. But right. I think we should we should enjoy it while it is last. Yeah, absolutely. PSG threw in this semi-final, but they were a seconds away from from a De Bruyne-esque same stuff, different year post-game comment against Atalanta, weren't they? Yes, you're right. Although, you know, I thought they played they played so well, especially in that second half. They were very wasteful in front of goals, especially Neymar, despite having a, a wonderful game overall. But it was, yeah, down to the last few minutes, which is not good for my heart. But, but it also shows, I think, the character that this team seems to have now, which maybe wasn't there before. And I think they've improved a lot on the psychological aspect as well of games and performances compared to before. And I think they felt that it was their time now and it was about time that the wheel would turn and be in their favour instead of against. Okay. Will Mbappé be starting this time? He will be starting this time. I think he could have started against Atalanta. They just didn't want to take any risk. I mean, Tuchel has always been very cautious with him. Even before the second leg against Dortmund, where he had a... Uh, he, he was ill, badly ill, and could have started, but didn't want to risk him or anything. Same for the Bruges game, if you remember, that we did together on the goal show on BT Sport, where he came back from that hamstring injury and didn't want to start him, but he could have started him. And then Kylian Mbappé responded by the hat-trick in, in 27 minutes or something. So he could have started him this time. He, he didn't against Atalanta, but he will certainly start against Leipzig. Whether that's on his own up front, wide, with the two up front, we don't, we're not sure yet, but he will certainly be there from the start. All right. A lot of people getting excited. We're talking about this with Rafa. The, the all-French clash potentially between him and uh, Dio Upamecano. Yeah, this is going to be fantastic. They they know each other a little bit, although, as you know, Kylian Mbappé is one of mine. He's uh, Paris-born and bred. Upamecano is from Evreux, which is not in Paris, nowhere near Paris either. But yeah, it's going to be fantastic. I, I was a bit, I have to say, Jimbo, and uh, this is not us bragging here on the Total Football Show European Edition, but we've we've been mentioning Upamecano for a long time and it seemed that people discovered him the other night against Atletico Madrid and which I was a bit surprised because he's been that good for a long time now he's very close to the French national team uh, he he has everything to become one of the best defenders in the world very very soon so I was a bit surprised by all the comments of people I say almost like they never seen him before they didn't know who he was before but that that performance against Atleti was just a confirmation of the incredible talent that he has and it would be a great battle between him and Mbappe mm. Paris such a man though defensively so strong uh, offensively so dangerous what's the weak spot well I think I think this game I think PSG are the better team individually the better side individually uh, but, but Leipzig are the better team the better side collectively and it will all be down to will this game be won with your individual brilliance so what Mbappe and Neymar or Di Maria can do or will you win this game by being the best side collectively together 
your movement all together, the way you press all together, the way you defend all together, your backline, whether it's a three or four or five. I, I think that PSG are the favorite and, and I think that's right. But I think this Leipzig team is so dangerous because of the way they play with all that intensity and all that movement and all that press that I think it's, it's not a given that PSG will go through at all. I, I still think they will because I do think that in those kind of games, especially over just one game of 90 minutes, your individual brilliance will shine maybe more than your collective strength. But I think Leipzig can, can also say the opposite. Mm. One question mark might be Sergio Rico, who's in for the injured Kayla Navas. Rico thus goalkeeping in a Champions League semi-final just a little bit more than a year on from getting relegated with Fulham after conceding 81 goals. Jules. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, Navas is the bad news. You would have wanted him. He's been really good this season. And Marco Verratti as well, who, who would, who's not fit enough to, to play in this game, which is a shame. You would have wanted PSG to have their, their strongest eleven. Uh, but you also would have wanted Leipzig to have their strongest eleven with Timo Werner. So I think those things level up anyway. But but Sergio Rico, who okay, it was it was a tough season for him at Fulham. Uh, he made a few a few blunders as well. But he had quite a good he has quite a good European pedigree if you if you look at it because he won the Europa League with Sevilla and Unai Emery. He actually played really well that season. He also had one good campaign in the Champions League for them. So you'll have to trust him. There's you know there's there's not much you can do anyway. Navas can't play uh, in the semi-finals, so you'll have to be Rico. He's tall, he's, he's good on his line, I think. Let's just hope that the pressure doesn't get to him and he can stay focused. And, and if the back four is, is solid and absorbs the waves that will come from Leipzig, then, then hopefully he can have a good game. Julian Laurence, uh, guys will be joining us actually tomorrow to preview the other uh, French-German semi-final. But Sasha... You're waving your hands in the air suddenly. What has Jules just said that's uh, caught your attention? Sergio Rico caught my attention, just like he did back in 28-19 season. Was, was the only thing he caught. Definitely. A series <laughs> of pathetic performances, which I think significantly contributed to Fulham's relegation. I think, in a way, Sergio Rico's situation in 2018-19 kind of summed up the chaos at Fulham at the time because he was brought in on loan. Fabri uh, was bought for five million from Besiktas, quickly uh, discarded into reserves because he basically wasn't very good. At the end of August... It's a fabrication. Exactly, it was fa completely fabric fabrication of a goalkeeper. Uh, Jose Correra, uh, the um, goalkeeping coach, left at the end of May. And after that, I think Rico just sort of moped around. I went to see a number of the Fulham games against the top sides, um, you know, from, from January onwards. And every game I watched him play in a team that really needs the goalkeeper to step up and really help them. He just played like a coward. Didn't come out for any crosses. <laughs> for You start off like 20th of January, last minute, good battling draw with, with, with Spurs, 1-1. One, one. 93rd minute, doesn't come out. Harry Winks, who's like 5'10", heads it in from six yards. Saw him against Chelsea. The only thing that stood out about that game, apart from the size of um, Gonzalo Higuain's bottom, uh, was the fact that Rico was completely mute. He did not talk to his defence. Against Liverpool, he dropped the ball, grabbed money, gave away a penalty, that ended up uh, costing them the game. And finally, against Manchester City, three and a half minutes in, he shanks a clearance, full and fall apart. The game's done after three minutes. I thought he was absolutely dreadful. I thought he didn't step up to the plate. And I thought from that particular season onwards, I really not a great fan of Sergio Rico. 
No, I, I, I get that. Sasha, how long have you been carrying this Sergio Rico <laughs> dossier around with you? Really upsetting. It's like it's a, sometimes, you know, you, you, you look at a player, you watch a player, if watch him a few times, and you just think he's letting everyone down. And in my opinion, he really let huh. his team down that season. Will you be rooting for Leipzig then on Tuesday night? Um, well, in this situation, I probably will be. Um, if anything, I'll be rooting for Leipzig's history. Ironically, something that RB Leipzig do not have. Because um, I went to Leipzig a few, a few years ago in 2013. Okay. 2013 was the 200th anniversary of Volkerschlacht, uh, the Battle of the Nations, uh, which turned the tide of history in Napoleonic Europe, where the French uh, came up against the Russians, the Prussians and the Austrians. So if you like, that was the decisive Franco-Prussian uh, encounter of its age. And Napoleon ended up being defeated and the Russians and the Prussians ended up marching into Paris in 1814. So maybe I hoped for another repeat of a Prussian triumph. All right. What was the key then? Why did uh, Napoleon lose that battle? Uh, basically, by that time, he annoyed pretty much everybody. Uh, right. His conquest of uh, Germany in uh, 1806, 1807 was quite brutal, and it basically gave the rise to the first sense of where Germany, we need to rise up, kind of brought the nation together. Ironically, Leipzig itself was in Saxony, which was allied with Napoleon, so they're in a really weird situation there. But if there was a, um, a historical battlefield to the south, because it was a three-day battle, but Murat's cavalry, 10,000 of them, charged at the Russians, nearly broke through, nearly captured the Tsar, and then they came up against uh, like one of these um, drainage canals, because it's quite swampy around there. The horses kind of stopped for a moment, the Russians had the time to regroup, attacked back, and then gradually pushed Napoleon out of the city. I have to say, the, in, in, in quite, um, you know, it's quite, quite ironic uh, twist of history. In 1913, they, op they opened this humongous monument uh, to, you know, to the Battle of the Nations when the last time the Russians and the Prussians were friends. But if you go to the top of the monument, you can actually see the stadium of Lokomotiva Leipzig, who were the traditional big team in Leipzig before RB came along. But unfortunately, then Division 4, and I think... Something that sort of something that happened after the fall uh, fall of the wall was that a lot of um, small football clubs they were basically overrun by the far right, um, and I think this is they just weren't particularly attractive. I think for the populace at large to watch, and maybe perhaps this is where RB Leipzig stepped in. Yes, they might be bland corporate and everything, but they were kind of seen as sort of family friendly. So they get the forty thousand, while local locomotive, the traditional team, get a few thousand. Um, you know, back in, in South South Leipzig. So I think you know sociologically, it's quite. Uh, Leipzig is a very, very interesting place. And, you know, whether you agree or disagree with the project, and I think that project could possibly be anywhere in Germany. I think that's the, that's the German fans' big problem. They don't really give much to the community. And I think until a Red Bull starts getting in the club more involved in, in, in the city itself, I think it's, it's, it will always be um, this alien body in German football for a lot of fans around the country. Mm, indeed. Um, James, how do you want to follow that? <laughs> Well, no, I just always appreciated, was it um, Murat? He, um, uh, there's some great portraits of him. And he was killed in Calabrios. And he was killed on, the, on like the, 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 the toe of the Italian uh, boot. He was executed, and wasn't he? He was executed and famously yeah. said, um, so, I think yeah. it was something like, soldiers do your duty, but not the face. Not the face. <laughs> the face. Well, is Which that where that comes from? Re yeah, reprised right. in, a, yeah. in American Psycho um, yeah, all those years later. He was king of Naples, I believe. Uh, Napoleon made the king of Naples. Quite a flamboyant figure. Good times. Well, um, oh yeah, that's right. Uh, I'll be Leipzig <laughs> PSG. <laughs> James, uh, some people are painting this as a bit of a mismatch, but what do you think? Well, I think I'll be uh, a side that are 
better coached than uh, than PSG, and I think that's because they've got uh, fewer egos in the side. Um, that it has been assembled as per the requirements of its coach, um, Julian Nagelsmann, and I think they're greater than the sum of their parts. And you know, I wasn't entirely convinced uh, by PSG against Atalanta. I thought they were the better side; they deserved to go through. I thought Neymar played very well. But I think there was still a feeling that they can be got at, that they're vulnerable. Um, and for that reason, it wouldn't surprise me really if, if we see Leipzig overcome uh, PSG and reach the final. I just thought Tuchel, you know, his game plan for the first hour of that game against Atalanta just seemed very reductive. Either that or his players weren't paying attention to the instructions that he'd given them pre-game. I just don't think that's that's a a prospect or an eventuality that would happen at Leipzig, for example, and it gives Leipzig a chance. Still in that game, Neymar had, had a lot of presentable chances even in the first hour. Um, I mean, I'm we, anticipating that Leipzig will do better defensively because, I mean, Atalanta could have been three or four down. Uh, well, I mean, they won't need to be better defensively if Neymar keeps finishing like that. I mean, that, <laughs> that, that felt like a, a clear strategy from Gasparini and it was ingenious for the first 45 minutes. And also, they've got the the modern equivalent of the the drainage canal, Upper Meccano. So, <laughs> so we'll see how that all works out. Anyway, this Tuesday evening, uh, very good. Uh, still to come on today's Totally Football Show Summer Special, uh, we're going to be catching up with Alvaro Romeo and the latest from Barcelona. First of all, though, here's Lee Price from Paddy Power. Hello. The final eight become the final four and we've got an odds-on favourite to win the Champions League. No, it's not Leon. Bayern at 8-15 after their historic 8-2 and who could seriously bet against them? But first, the battle to lose the German champions in the final. Having been unsure on PSG in the last round, we now make them odds-on to beat Leipzig here, priced at 8-11. The energy drink-powered side are 16-5 to to cause an upset or 3-1 just to cause extra time. Kylian Mbappé is even to score any time in this game, while Maxim Choupo-Moting is 6-1 to one to score the last goal. Hey, that isn't a joke this time. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only, terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Now, Meltdown is ongoing in Barcelona, as you know, after that 8-2 defeat by Bayern in the Champions League quarterfinals. Consigned the Catalans to their first trophyless season in more than a decade. Monday saw Kike Setien fired and talk that Barcelona had chosen Ronald Koeman to begin their rebuilding. Well, to tell us more about that, here's Alvaro Romeo. Alvaro, first of all, is this Koeman deal actually done? Uh, no, it is not done. It is not official, but he is definitely the main candidate. Uh, the Barcelona director, Oscar Grau, is already in Amsterdam. And uh, Ronald Koeman was already contacted in January uh, to be the Barcelona manager. But uh, well, at that time, it didn't happen. Ronald Koeman wasn't too sure about that. Uh, probably he thought that international football was going to go on in March and then, you know, in summer during the Euros. But yeah, this second time, uh, it seems that Ronald Koeman is closer to Barcelona and he's the main candidate, definitely. Uh, a former Barcelona player, he was the goal scorer in the European Cup final 1992 and he's a Barcelona legend, really. Uh, the other candidate could be probably García Pimienta, uh, some of the... This is the Barcelona second team manager, uh, some of the 
members of the board think that it could be a good decision, but majority Ronald Koeman seem to be the, the biggest candidate to be the Barcelona manager. And now the question is, how many years will Bartomeu, Barcelona president, offer Ronald Koeman? Because uh, let's don't forget that on the 15th of March, there will be elections uh, for Barcelona. And of course, if he offers Ronald Koeman three years and another candidate comes with Xavi, let's say, and wins the elections, then uh, they will have to pay Ronald Koeman uh, a sacking fee. Mm. That said, they do need somebody uh, for the meanwhile anyway, even if uh, it is going to be somebody who's only until March. You say a legend as a player, perhaps a little bit less so as a, as a manager. How how will Kuma's appointment, if it if it is confirmed, go down with the supporters? Well, I think that uh, with a little bit of scepticism, because uh, yes, the older generation remember Ronald Koeman, but uh, at the same time he was in La Liga and uh, he had a huge controversy when he was managing Valencia with three Valencia captains, uh, Cañizares, Salvelda and um, Angulo, I believe. And uh, yeah, I think that he... His stint in La Liga left like a little bit of a dark point in his CV. Uh, all that said, um, there is also some expectation about Ronald Koeman. At the end of the day, he is a manager who who has been working under Johan Cruyff. And they expect the fans that uh, finally Ronald Koeman is going to apply some of the Johan Cruyff's ideas because Kike Setien uh, said that he was going to do it and at the end he ended up playing like Ernesto Valverde or even worse. So I would say that, uh, yeah, Ronald Koeman being a Barcelona legend, that's going to help at the beginning. But uh, I want to see whether he is capable and uh, daring enough of doing what he said in an interview a few months ago when uh, speaking in Spanish for a... For a reporter from Catalonia, he said that uh, the players in their 30s, the likes of Busquets, Piqué, Arturo Vidal, Luis Suárez, you name them, uh, needed to step out little by little and a big change was needed. He wasn't saying that the change was needed now. But yeah, Ronald Koeman now, he has the, the chance perhaps to do the job that uh, some other managers couldn't. And I believe that the board, in this case, and Bartomeu and the rest, they're going to vote for Ronald Koeman to do a huge restructuration in the team. And in fact, uh, in the statement saying that the Kike Setien was leaving, it also said that uh, this is just part of uh, a big restructuration that uh, hasn't been completed yet. Okay. Which names do you think will go for the new season? They will assess the cases of players with big wages in their 30s. Luis Suárez, Sergio Busquets, Gerard Piqué, Arturo Vidal and Rakitic. Umtiti will be one of these players who is younger but still has a good value in the market and I believe that he will be sold. And uh, they will assess the, as well the cases of Dembélé and Philippe Coutinho. For those players, probably Barcelona can get a lot of money. I'm not saying that all of them will leave, but uh, they will definitely, Barcelona will definitely try to find an exit for all these uh, very important players in Barcelona history, especially the first uh, four that I mentioned. And there's, there's there's another player in his 30s who has really big wages, isn't there? Yes, that was the only guy that is left to talk about. Is Lionel Messi. Yesterday, Sporte Interativo, the same journalist who announced that Neymar was going to leave Barcelona, said that Messi wants to go now. Uh, from uh, reports that come from Catalonia, apparently that information is not wrong at all. And uh, the question will be uh, whether this happens or not. Obviously, uh, Lionel Messi, if he gets presented a very convincing project, I believe that he 
could be persuaded still to stay. And if he wants to go, what is Barcelona going to do? Are they going to get rid of his wages and uh, sell him on the cheap? I don't think so. Uh, he's got a 700 million release close. And I don't think that uh, Bartomeu is going to allow uh, Lionel Messi to leave for a cheap price because uh, that would be the most damning indictment to his stint as Barcelona president. But yes, reports say, and these reports seem to be very reliable, that Lionel Messi wants to leave now. On that bombshell, Alvaro Romeo. This messy story still feels a little bit like it's being powered by enormous amounts of wishful thinking by one or two clubs and interested parties. But every day it grows a little bit, James. Yeah, I think until uh, matters are resolved at Barcelona in terms of the structure that they put in place for, what, the next seven months, this isn't going to go away. Um, and I think it's going to be such a toxic environment for, let's say, Ronald Koeman, who comes in, um, because ultimately he is the man of the most unpopular president in recent history at Barcelona, who basically, yeah, I would say in fans' eyes, is standing in the way of real meaningful change that they need to see at Barcelona. And this just seems to kick the can down the road until March. Um, and it looks like he's going to get, what, a two-year deal, and yet he probably knows that um, you know by the time a new president comes in um, endorsed by every kind of ex-Barcelona player who fans would like to see on the bench like Xavi he's going to be out on his ass again which just for me just is just a crazy decision from Koeman to leave what seems like a, a very promising generation of, of, of Dutch players who he reached the uh, the Nations League final with um, last summer, losing to Cristiano's Portugal in Portugal. You've got a Euros coming up, and you know by the time that Euros comes around, he might already be out of a job at Barcelona. Well, yeah, he could, just, mm. he could just step back and... <laughs> well, it's, it's staggeringly short-sighted, in my opinion. And, and if, if he takes it, it Alvaro yeah. pointing out there that it's not done, and they were in Amsterdam on Monday to talk to him, it, it might be that there is another twist or turn or two well, like David tale. Silva, of course, who was supposed right. to be joining Lazio, has <laughs> right. rocked up at Real Sociedad. Yeah. So uh, if it is Koeman, though, uh, however much sense it might make from his own kind of career terms, and you know, let's bear in mind that this is a man who's been so dedicated to the idea of reaching the Barcelona bench that he used to drive around in a Bentley with a Barcelona number plate when he was at... Uh, at Everton. How strong do you think is his coaching CV for the job that, if he takes it, that he's about to going to need to do? Well, this is what I'm looking at. So Barcelona trophyless for the first time in over a decade. Koeman is trophyless for over a decade. Um, and I mean, he's been to, you know, AZ, <laughs> Feyenoord, um, Southampton, Everton. I mean, okay, maybe you might not be expected to win that much there. But it's, I mean, even at Everton, you know, the my understanding was that this, this, this air of, oh, I could be better somewhere better, um, kind of didn't really go down particularly well. Um, and yeah, I don't really think if you look through his CV, particularly how Czech it is, he's never really stayed anywhere for, for long outside of Holland. Um, and given the environment at um, at Barcelona, you know, is, is this politically, is he going to survive there? I can't see that being welcomed in the dressing room as like, ah, yeah, this is going to change everything. 
I think it's clear from what Gerard Piquet was saying after the after the elimination um, to Bayern that uh, it's the structure of the club that needs to change. And as long as the existing president is there, it doesn't really matter. I don't think who he brings in to replace the sporting director who's you know expected to go and all the other kind of the guys that um, you know have jobs at Barcelona, which are seemingly very important, and you know they. They seem to benefit from more than than the club in the, in the sense that the re- reputational cachet of being part of Barcelona seems to have preceded them really uh, for a, for a long time. I, I mean, I saw, for example, Roma being linked with one of the sporting directors at Barcelona, Ramon Planes. And it's like, well, what has he done to kind of justify? Uh, yeah, I'm going to go and, and and be sporting director for Roma when you look at. The track record of, of Barcelona's recruitment in recent years, you know, other than being able to basically, you know, wave a CV and say, "Oh, look, Barcelona, Barcelona," and hope someone's silly enough to think that's um, that means you're actually really, really good at your job. I don't know. <laughs> it, it does seem that as Barcelona have got more and more popular and have kind of, um, yeah, certainly over the last fifteen years, do, does seem to be the last fifteen years of, of Barcelona being maybe the premier team among the super clubs. It does seem like. Uh, you know, fame being the mask that eats the face a little bit. And um, it's just been, the last five years just seems been very corrosive in that respect. Or, or, or as another great man once said, victory has defeated you. <laughs> <laughs> Was that Murat? <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, well, there you go. Uh, interesting that Simon Cooper... Uh, was tweeting today that uh, he's seen reports in the Netherlands that Arsene Wenger has approached the Dutch FA to maybe take over from Koeman as their national team manager if if Koeman goes. I'm not seeing that anywhere else, but I'm not across particularly uh, Dutch football sources. So, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, well, there you go. Uh, Football, it never stops throwing up fascinating storylines. And you can be sure we'll have a whole bunch more uh, come Wednesday morning. Uh, when we return with Tony Football Show's summer special, looking back on tonight's Champions League semi-final and forward to the other one. Sasha, thank you so much for being with us today. See you later. And yeah, I think it's time to let go of the Sergio Rico business. Pull, pull them a back up. Yeah. 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 They have a good keeper now, Rodak. Uh, yeah. Solid, old school. Okay. Yeah, maybe. Thank you. Thank you for this session, James. Thank you. I feel, <laughs> I feel, I feel lighter. <laughs> okay, good. And many thanks to you, James Horncastle. Pleasure. And Alvaro Romeo and Rafa and Jules, etc. And producer Charlie Listener, thank you above all. Do join us tomorrow. For now, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletics Football Podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual places, or listen ad free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. Muddy Knees Media.